0: don't you worry (laughs) we are recording
1: wait sorry hold on hello hello
0: welcome to Salem the podcast we are
1: your hosts and favorite Salem tour guides
0: my name is Sarah Black
1: and I'm Jeffrey Lilly
0: and today we are live coming to you from Deal Marcus and Company how is everyone doing tonight Oh my goodness. Wow. Very nice. You
1: are all wonderful. Thank you all for showing up and uh, being here. And I I see a lot of familiar faces. I see unfamiliar faces, which like, sorry, friends, like the people who I don't recognize, I appreciate even more. Uh, <laughs> so thank you. Mom, be quiet. So thank you so much for coming. Uh, we appreciate all of you. And uh, sorry about the... <laughs> uh, i see everyone's fanning themselves with your little pe- everyone you got a little penguin postcard yes yep there you go uh that's from the peabody essex museum which we're going to be talking about today
0: yes and don't worry there is a couple intermissions along the way so we'll be able to get out of this heat we'll throw the air uh, the ac back on get some refreshments in us and then come back for the second part so just keep that in mind
1: so where to begin
0: Today, the Peabody Essex Museum... Actually, show of hands, who's been to the PEM before? The vast majority of us. Okay. Some of us That's not. It's pretty much everyone. That's good. I'll tell you what. I, uh, I didn't know a lot about the history of the Peabody Essex Museum before doing this research. Like, I knew a little bit about it, but I feel like its trajectory is probably as unique as its collections, the way that it has come to be.
1: Sarah uh, has this... Um Habit of like <laughs> wildly falling in love <laughs> with every topic we do.
0: So, if we had any ill feelings towards the PEM coming into this, I was feeling great about them today. So, I can't speak the same for Jeff, but Meh. mostly. But today, it is a world-class museum, for those who don't know, one that collects exhibits on history, art, uh, culture, in probably the most unique way. 1.8 million... Uh, individual items, and that ranges from objects like that surround us today, also documents. They have three different campuses, 24 historic homes, 35 buildings in total, and they have been around since 1799. So it has the distinguished honor of being the oldest continuously operating museum in the country. And it's right here in downtown Salem. I feel like most right, people- Right over there. Don't really pay attention to that. Yeah. So- If
1: if any of you are on those, like, things to do in Salem groups, they're always like, oh, oh, here, here, and the witch, everyone takes a tour, everyone goes to Red's, and the Pam is just, like, ignored. 80% 80% of the time, uh, which is a bit of a tragedy. But I'm glad all of you, and for those of you who are listening, uh, go and check that out. Um, and I don't know if, if I heard Christian mention, uh, all the things you can see in dis- on display in this room are uh, from his collection, and they are things that the PEM also uh, has within their collection. So uh, take a moment to look around, other than the stuff here. This is mine. This is my friend, which I'm sure... <laughs> I posts- told
0: him to bring his skulls, so... Yeah,
1: I brought one. He's just right here. He's Nice. Don't worry, um, but with that, yeah. So seventeen ninety nine.
0: Yeah, let's let's kind of trace the trajectory because I'm sure, like myself and probably you as well, these folks don't probably know how exactly it came to be.
1: It's like a. It's a
0: little complicated,
1: like a family tree.
0: Yes, very much so.
1: You're like you got like you got the ancestor, and then you got descendants, and they're all like, "Where's your where's your name from? What's your family name? Where's your second name?" And that's right.
0: So it starts in 1799 with the East India Marine Society, established by 22 Salem Master Mariners. So I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, they had to have sailed uh, underneath Cape Hope. Or Cape Horn. Correct. Sorry, the Cape of Good Hope or Cape Horn. So that would be underneath Africa or underneath South America. So if you're
1: a a merchant or a ship trader who just goes down to the Caribbean and trades in that area or even in Europe, you don't count. You're
0: you're cool, but you're not not, that that cool. cool.
1: So, yeah.
0: So the mission was twofold. They provided aid to disabled seamen, as well as uh, widows and families of deceased members. But what we're kind of concerned today, more importantly, to promote, quote, a knowledge of navigation and trade to the East Indies, and to form a museum of natural and artificial curiosities. So you could think of this as the starting point of the Peabody Essex Museum. So they literally
1: start as a curiosities museum there as you all, I'm sure you all know like cabin of curiosities and that sort of stuff so the PEM starts with like these 22 guys being like hey man
0: we got all this cool stuff
1: look what I got let's look put what it I found. somewhere
0: and show everyone what yeah. we got
1: you go on vacation you get like some cool memento some cool rock some cool shell you come home and you show your friends shrunken head shrunken heads we'll get to that <laughs> promise
0: so in 1825, they finally move into their first permanent building, the East India Marine Hall. So if you've walked up Essex Street, that is kind of the cornerstone of the Peabody Essex Museum. It's right in the center. It's flanked on either side by different wings.
1: So it's that building right across from the fountain, the mm-hmm. big, gorgeous one that says East India Marine Hall.
0: With a big anchor in front. Yeah, I,
1: yeah. If, yes. if you miss that... Um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't Should
0: know. we tell them the little secret about the anchor that's underneath it?
1: I think some of them might know.
0: I think we should.
1: I think, I, I think. It
0: doesn't pertain to this topic necessarily, but it is still really cool.
1: Okay. Tell them. Well, did, did he talk about it on air? No, did he, he did he, not. He didn't. Okay.
0: So our first uh, interviewee was the first magician of Salem, um, Anton and his family actually comes from movers. Like, literally, they move stuff, whether a it's moving com- company. commercial, residential, yeah. and that's kind of their main shtick. And they helped move that anchor in front of the Peabody Essex Museum. But there's kind of like a superstition that goes along with it.
1: With anchors in general. Mm-hmm. And anchors touching ground, earth bad. Uh, bad juju for sailors.
0: Sea good,
1: earth Yeah, bad. ocean good, land bad. Uh, right, right. Two if by one if by, <laughs> and so that anchor is actually not touching the stone that it's on. There is a quarter.
0: I think it's a quarter. It's a quarter. Go with like, put your phone on the little um flashlight and, like, and, and, and look like, underneath go li- it.
1: Go like lean all the People way. People are
0: gonna look at you funny. <laughs>
1: But, but it's there, yeah.
0: and you can see it. So yeah. there is a coin sitting underneath that anchor in front of the East India Marine Hall.
1: And that anchor, by the way, has been <coughs> excuse me, to the farthest ports of the rich east and back again. It's literally all the way to Japan and, and, and back to this country. Uh, so that is a pretty uh, cool thing to literally just have outside. And don't sit on it or jump on it or have your kids sit or jump on it.
0: Why, Jeff, I think that is our city motto to this day. Is (laughs) it? To the farthest ports of the rich east, if you guys didn't know. I thought I just made that up. (laughs) So they move into this building in 1825. Uh, The merchants filled it with objects from... All around the globe, coins, taxidermy, musical instruments, shells, weapons, sculptures. There was even a whale skeleton hanging from the ceiling. There still kind of is. Okay, so there is. I missed it. I've missed it every time that I've gone in. I saw it in the old pictures, but I somehow missed it. Yeah, but go into the pen. Go into the pen this week and you'll see it. It was found in Beverly. Yeah. Oh, so it's not even from no, the farthest ports. No. Okay. It's,
1: but it's it's not that big. It's like, I don't know, between these two pillars, maybe? Yeah,
0: it's not, it's like a baby whale, not a but big I whale. But I have
1: heard, I have heard rumor of, and if anyone can confirm or deny, that there is like a full like blue whale skeleton in, um. shoot.
0: Your house? No.
1: Just kidding. Um, lost it. God.
0: We're live, Across, dude. I know.
1: The... It's not right on Essex. What's the? It's not in my head. Someone help me. Who the has? Big, the, the big brick building on Essex, right across. CBS. No.
0: <laughs> What's it called? <laughs> oh, the, the two, the red buildings. Yes. They're somewhere in my notes. They'll come up eventually. We can come back to it.
1: Yeah. No, no, not the courthouse on Essex. Oh, wow.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's coming up. Don't worry. It's in here. It's anyway, in here. It's in here.
1: I, I clearly, sorry, I have failed radically. It's okay. Um, that there is a full whale skeleton in there, and they have since built and constructed around it so they can't get out. I have no evidence to support that. That's just something I heard once. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> That is where Sounds the dragons like from it. the Game of Thrones come Sounds from. Sounds
0: like it, but imagine, imagine being someone back in 1825 and going into this building and seeing all of these things. Like, obviously, we have the internet now. We can pull up on our phone skeleton of a whale. Like, we elephants. know we know what elephants look like. We know what penguins look like. We know what whales look like, but. Yeah, imagine going back in the 1800s to see these things. This is an extraordinary opportunity, and the people of Salem got to take full advantage of so it. Like
1: One of the points of this cabinet, of this Museum of Curiosities, was to help people circumnavigate the globe and see the things that all these other merchants and captains and people have seen. And there are things in the world that they have seen without having to leave the comfort of their own home.
0: Yep, it's basically like taking a walk around the world, but from the comfort of your own local museum. So around this time, so we've got the East India Marine Society. They move into this building, but at the same time, we have some other historical organizations developing in Salem. The Essex uh, Historical Society founded in 1821, and Essex County Natural History Society founded in 1833. Sounds a little repetitive, probably why they merged uh, back in 1848. Uh, so these entities come together. They form the Essex Institute. The merger brings together a multitude of different collections, including natural specimens, historical memorabilia, books, other objects related to Essex County and the surrounding area. Their goal was to, quote, collect and preserve whatever relates to the typography, the antiquities, civil, and ecclesiastical history of Essex County in Massachusetts— Also, to establish a library and promote a taste for the cultivation of choice fruits and flowers and collect works on horticulture and agriculture. So it sounds like they're all over the place, but the cool part is, if you know the Peabody Essex Museum today and what their campus uh, encompasses, these things make sense, right? We have the Ropes Garden. We have that area behind um, Plummer Hall. That's what it is, Plummer Hall, the red building to the left.
1: Phillips Library.
0: Yes, yes. What is Plummer yeah, Hall? Yeah. P- Plummer Hall, Phillips Library. We got it. We got it. Yeah, no, I
1: I yes. remember yeah.
0: <laughs> But uh, if you that, didn't
1: see me go like this, yeah. that, it, oh,
0: was that where it came from? Yeah, is that okay?
1: You said library, and it it, yep. it clicked.
0: There we go. Yes. But yeah, so like you, these, all these uh, components of our mm-hmm. current Peabody Essex Museum, they are founded in these uh, organizations that really kick things off. <laughs> So after that, we've got the Institute renting out the uh, bottom floor of Plummer Hall uh, in 1857. So that's the first time that that organization gets their own, uh, you know, brick and mortar space to showcase their collections. It was here. In Plummer Hall, and later on, it would expand to that adjacent building. They would keep their collection of books, documents, and artwork while hosting regular events like lectures, art exhibits, and concerts. So if you listen to our episode on the Salem Lyceum, you know that Salem was a bustling port, uh, not just of actual material goods, but also ideas, people coming in and talking about things that, you know, educating the public. Um, and this was actually one of those locations where this was conducted
1: so this uh, the facility and you've got a picture of it Uh so it's like there's no so today when you go to the PEM right? it's like a sort of classic museum and there's like a portrait and then another portrait and then there might be like a desk right if you went to these facilities back then Walls, every inch was covered in portraits. Glass cabinets, nearly overfilling.
0: Maximalism, filled. I at believe,
1: its, at its best. And like the, the the specimens of taxidermy of birds of of seashells of coral of plant life tell him about that? is is just like. The pictures are ridiculous.
0: It's it's amazing. It's it's a curiosity museum. Yeah. Everything that I wish I kind of. I mean, I like the PEM now, but I kind of wish I walked into that. The, yeah, 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 like your house. <laughs> These people haven't seen your house, but so, it is a bit of a cabinet of curiosities. So some
1: of them like he thought- literally
0: just rented a storage space. So I'm just gonna just put that out there. Just gonna put that.
1: <laughs> God, yes, yes, it's he did. <laughs> it's, just, it's, I'm, it's okay. So
0: this collection keeps growing. Their, their collection grows. They include more books, documents, artwork, while hosting, like I said, regular events. Um, the Salem Athenaeum was just above them. And the Essex Institute would eventually purchase that building in 1906 with the Anthenaeum moving down to Essex Street, which I didn't know. I thought that that was always their original no, building. Yeah. So that was, that was news to me.
1: Anthenaeum's a cool place.
0: We'll be there in December if anyone wants to come to live show number three. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just put that out there.
1: <laughs> which will likely be like a charity thing for the holidays and stuff. So no idea what the plan on that is. I just totally threw Sarah under the bus on that. It's
0: okay. I went with it. So enter George Peabody, our great philanthropist, which you will actually see a portrait of him right off to your left here.
1: Gentleman's got dollars.
0: So we're... So, remember, we're dealing with two different trajectories. We're hopping back to the East India Marine Society. So, George Peabody donates in 1867 $140,000 to establish the Peabody Academy of Science.
1: Which is what Christian was talking about before in this facility
0: which then acquires the East India Marine Hall. The society absorbs all the society's collections, as well as the natural history and ethnology collections of the Essex Institute. So you already have a kind of a crossover of these two institutions. Just FYI, that's nearly $2.9 million in today's money. So this guy definitely gave up a lot of cash to establish this institution. I'd do it. Yeah, you would. (laughs) (gasps)
1: All of a sudden you get your name in lights and that's okay.
0: Now, that Peabody Academy of Science eventually transforms into the Peabody Museum of Salem. So they kind of just switched the name over, uh, kind of changed things up. This is, happens in 1915 with a different mission. At the same time, the Essex Institute was creating that, uh, that secondary campus with all the historic buildings behind Plummer Hall. So both institutions are growing at the same pace, uh, pretty much adjacent to each other, both geographically and uh, collection wise. And the big merger finally comes in 1992. So we are,
1: how many, how many is that? Um, 28, 27. I I can't count why you,
0: oh my gosh, it's 31. 31. I was going to say, I I was born in 93. (laughs) So I'm turning 30 this year. Yes. 31. I was thinking, (laughs) thank you. Um, I was thinking that uh, I was thinking from back from 1799. So it took a long time to get from the East India Marine Society to the current Peabody Essex Museum you see today. And it was this kind of weaving in of different organizations. They're developing, they're changing. The Essex
1: Institute, George Peabody, Peabody Essex Museum, Science, et cetera.
0: That's where the name comes from. You get the Peabody from the Peabody Museum of Salem and the Essex from the Essex Institute.
1: And it's in 1992 that uh, we get um, the institution we have today. So uh, they've expanded. They've built wings. They've grown wildly in in, in such phenomenal ways. But it is really uh, in 92 that that the core of what we see today uh, comes forth. Which also kind of means that they... mm, Try to cater to a perhaps a different crowd. Uh, which, that was
0: a nice way of putting it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, their goal is to become what it is, this world renowned museum, given its history, given the artifacts, given what is in there.
0: They have to maintain the reputation. Yeah,
1: and they realize that there is uh, a lot that they have, which also means as much as they have on display, there's a lot that they. Don't have. And some things that we are going to talk about today are not on display. Some things are on display. And the first thing that we're going to get to talk about on display today is one of my most favorite things. Maybe like first favorite, second favorite? It's definitely a top three. Top three. For me as well. Yes. This is the murder weapon. Who has been to the Peabody Essex Museum and seen the murder weapon?
0: Yes. So many of us.
1: Love that for all of you. Now, um, (laughs) I... As I was sitting here, like, like uh, talking about this with myself, uh, because that's how research goes—you don't have like a partner. We, we do so. We a lot try of to do it separate. Yeah, um, I was like, "Gosh, I've never seen a murder weapon before," and then I sort of thought to myself, "That's a lie." Um, given, uh, previous occupations, given every museum that you've ever been in. And you're like, look at all these swords. Look yeah. at all these guns. Look why at
0: why these... do we fixate on the club? I, look why? at all these pikes
1: and pole arms. But I think it's because like, those are general warfare items. And even in like warfare, death is kind of. Accepted, and mm-hmm. you know horrific as, as, as war and those constructs are. You're like, oh, cool! Someone carried, and they must have killed hundreds of people. But that club, there's you know,
0: something about it. Hey, it's unique.
1: It is. It, it is. is unique.
0: U- there's none like it
1: out there. Yeah, because it is handmade. I mean, I guess swords are also handmade, but it's specifically hand carved for the purpose of murder. Show of hands, who knows about the murder of Captain White?
0: Oh, a couple of us. And you're all
1: great. Love you all. Thank you. So, um, I don't have, how long was that episode? Like,
0: oh, an hour, <laughs> an hour and a half, 40 minutes so or let's, so.
1: Let's see if I can circumvent this in like three minutes. Um, So we are talking about a murder weapon. It is a club that is carved by Richard Crown Shield for the sole intent purpose of committing murder. And, uh, this is the murder of Captain White. Captain White lived in the Gardner Pingree house, which is on Essex street. Uh, if you've been on pretty much any ghost, dark night tour here in Salem, they are going to talk about this infamous murder. Um, it rattles Salem to its core. Arguably it, it rattles the country to its core. Um, and it is still inspiring things that we know and learn of today. Uh, now, so what like, happens... Like
0: podcast episodes.
1: Like podcast episodes.
0: <laughs> We're not the only one that talked no, about it.
1: This, so. is, this is a big... A lot of podcasters who do true crime or historic crime, uh, 100% uh, touch on this as well. So the club itself, if you haven't been, it's probably about...
0: I feel like it's a little bigger than that. Yep, yeah, there we probably go. Probably about
1: yay big, yep. maybe, maybe two feet or yeah. so. And... It is wielded by Richard Crownshield, And I can sit here and I can tell you all about the murder and the money, the money that he was paid, money he was supposed By the way, I'm Ooh. fairly... <laughs> I, I'm going to go with 90% confident that the thousand pounds that Joe Knapp Jr. was supposed to pay Richard Crownshield for the murder of Captain White was stored in a bank. Well, no, I'm 100% sure it was stored in a bank. I'm 90% sure it was stored in here in this building
0: in this bank uh
1: this was a bank at that point in history and uh i'm I'm, i don't want to like i can't say 100 percent uh but i can say with good certainty that the blood money was stored uh possibly 15 feet that way as i point behind me so with that uh I can talk about the murder. I can talk about the murder all day. Uh, But what I'm actually going to do is read you some of Joseph Knapp's confession. So he eventually gets arrested for the crime. And he, with the promise of a pardon, turns state's evidence in three days. Because, like, dude, come on. (laughs) Crown and Shield requested Frank. Frank is Joe's brother, by the way. Crown and Shield is the murderer. Crown Shield requested Frank to go home. He left, but soon returned. During his absence, the lights in the mansion were exhausted, and shortly afterward, the hired assassin placed a plank against the house, entered the window, and crept upstairs to White's sleeping chamber. The moon was shining through the window onto the old man's face. By the way, it was the night of a full moon. Uh, because what better way to commit murder? You know what? No, I'm going to take that. That's the stupidest yeah, I was going to say,
0: they probably should have done it at like when New
1: Moon. No, uh, no. because It's obvious- a dark and stormy night.
0: Exactly. They didn't have street lights back then. N- not so. on the night of the
1: full moon. No. Never claimed the man was intelligent. Getting back to it. Crown Shield swung his bludgeon and struck white on the temple, probably killing him instantly, but to be certain.
0: Sorry. Being
1: theatrical. Thank you. But to be certain, he lowered the bedclothes and stabbed him repeatedly in the region of the heart. And It doesn't say in this, but we do know that he stabbed him 13 times. Murdered under the light of the full moon is stabbed 13 times. I hit, know, right? So romantic. Hit
0: over the head with a <laughs> handcrafted weapon for the occasion. The love.
1: <laughs> the
0: enthusiasm. That's what I tell the my dedication. participants on
1: tour. He then felt the pulse being satisfied. The job was well done. He departed. He met, And this is actually like the historically important part. He met Frank on a side street and explained in detail what he had done. After hiding the bludgeon under the steps of a meeting house on Howard Street, he returned to Danvers. So in the confession that he writes and signs, we learn the location of the murder weapon. It is recovered by the not police committee of vigilance and they keep it and turn it over to um would have been the essex institute
0: eventually yeah yeah and
1: that has been held by these facilities for over a century and is currently on display um
0: i think it's the i think it's safe to say this is the closest speaking it to a clue murder weapon
1: Right. Ah, Let's, let's,
0: let's say just a reminder. This did not inspire the Parker brothers to produce clue. However, their ancestor was a judge or at least was set to judge for this trial.
1: He did like a little bit. And then he died. Poor
0: guy died.
1: Lots of death here around the board. Um, but the, the case is tried by the prominent Daniel Webster. Um, and he is a prosecutor and this is Yes, likely... Black
0: Dan. I yeah. saw that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I won't get into that now. Um, for for those of you who know, you know. Uh, that other little interesting tidbit of historical fact about Danny Webster. We might cover that later. <laughs> so um I've also have uh some of his uh trial documents. I'm not gonna read the whole thing and I mean it's not boring at all. But So you get an idea of the confession, and then when it takes the courtroom, this man, a sitting senator from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, comes up to prosecute the case. And this is one of, if not the only cases he ever prosecutes, from Black Dan himself. And just imagine, this is 1830 in the courtroom, and he is one of the most prominent, prolific legal minds of his age. Gentlemen, because obviously... It is a most extraordinary case. In some respects, it is hardly a precedent anywhere, certainly not in our New England history. This bloody drama exhibited no sudden excited, ungovernable rage. The actors in it were not surprised by any lion-like tempted springing upon their virtue and overcoming it before resistance could begin, nor did they do the deed to glut savage vengeance or to satire long settled and deadly hate. It was cool, calculating, money-making murder. It was all hire and salary, not revenge. It was the wielding, excuse me, it was the weighing of money against life, the counting out of so many pieces of silver against so many ounces of blood. This is the opening statement so in the court. Like, my goodness. You
0: know he had the ladies oh, coming the man, after him after that. Daniel
1: Webster. <laughs> An aged man without an enemy in the world, in his own house and in his own bed, is made the victim of a butchery murder. For mere pay, truly, here is a new lesson for painters and poets. Whoever shall hereafter draw the portrait of murder, if he will show it as it has been exhibited, where such example was the last to have been looked for in the very bosom of our New England society, let him not give it the grim visage of moloch the brow knitted by revenge the face black with settled hate and the bloodshot eyes emitting livid fires of malice let him draw rather a decorous smooth-faced bloodless demon a picture in repose rather than an action not so much an example of human nature in its depravity and in its proxims of a crime as an infernal being a fiend in the ordinary display and development of his character Because those who are willing to commit murder don't look like some demon. They look like the guy sitting next to you. Oh.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well done, Jeffrey.
1: (laughs) Thank you, thank you, thank you. (laughs) But I could go on. I could probably read this whole thing and be wildly entertained for hours. But at the end of the day, it's one of these fantastic things that the Peabody Essex Museum owns. It was a hand-carved murder weapon, and the top is filled with lead, so he drills a hole to make it more weighty, more ergonomic, so that swing does him in, sneaking in amidst the moonlight
0: and you can still see the building
1: and yeah. the building
0: itself is owned and controlled by the Peabody Essex Museum. I will say as much as I have fallen in love with this topic, I really wish they would open up their historic houses more often like that one for partic- in particular, but mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. eventually, I'm sure it'll I'm sure <laughs> Sorry. it'll eventually Sorry. be open back up. <coughs> But you had mentioned how you, I think both of us went into the Peabody Essex Museum just for research purposes. We've been, we've seen these objects before, but just to get a better look at things. And you spotted something. I also spotted something. You said you looked on top of it.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I say all the time that, you know, it's filled with lead, but I was like, is it, is it really, there is literally a hole. In the top of the weapon that has been filled with lead, so you can see where it is. Because it typically on display in the museum, you just see it from the straight angle. You don't get to see the top. And I was like, "Oh, no!" So I like, I stood up like on my tiptoes, like I held my phone camera, and I like, I took. A I did picture. the
0: same thing, and I thought that the uh, the sensors were going to start going <laughs> off. I was like, "Oh goodness!"
1: <laughs> Come get. Sorry, no more podcast. Sarah's been arrested uh, as an okay. art thief.
0: Hey, that'd give us some good cred. You I feel what? like go do it. Um. So you were looking at the top. I didn't even think to look at the top. You're a little taller than me. So I looked at, I don't know if you can tell. They won't be able to see. But I'm pretty sure that the indentation from Captain White's swinging is actually in the wood and they have it facing outwards. So next time you go into the Peabody Essex Museum, take a really close look at that murder weapon. Because It's I'm, definitely
1: been hit against something.
0: Yeah. I mean, if it was handcrafted, only used once. You got to think that indentation came dun, from dun, something. Dun. So, yeah, it's just eerie to think about. And the coolest part is we get to tell our tour groups these stories and then you get to say go into the Peabody Essex Museum, check out the actual murder weapon. We've still got it 200 years later. Unless it's on a Monday. Or Tuesday. It's closed on Tuesday, too. So we move on to a little bit of a lighter subject, the penguin. So I'm sure a lot of you noticed there was a penguin on your seat when you came in. That is yours to take, little postcard. Keep a little
1: picture of an oddity for you.
0: Put it on your fridge, put it in a frame, whatever you'd like. And some folks who may not know, who knows the story of the penguin? Out of curiosity. oh, Oh, there's so few. Nice. I love it. All right. So... This is probably one of my favorite objects. Um, Definitely top three, just like Ah. the club. And also in the same exhibit as you will see the club. So go into the Salem Stories exhibit. They've got uh, 26 vignettes ranging from A to Z. um, And it focuses all on Salem, different facets of its history. So the penguin... I guess we should call it an anatomically incorrect penguin. As you can see, it doesn't look like a normal penguin.
1: He's not all like... Okay.
0: No. It was taken... So that penguin in particular, and I think we should name it by the end of this live oh, show like, because it deserves one. Like an actual name? Like an actual name. Ongoing joke. Just think of something. Come back to me after the end of uh, Generally, intermission.
1: Generally, she's just throwing this at me. Now I have to come up.
0: So it was taken alive from the Falkland Islands off the coast of Argentina in 1820 and was donated to the East India Marine Society in 1821 by Captain George Hodges. Now, George Hodges, he was like many wealthy merchant uh, merchants in Salem, came from a merchant family. You know, it's the family business. You learn from your father. His father, John Hodges, was actually the one of the founding members of the East India Marine Society and was the society's first president. They also had familial ties to the Derby family, which we're uh, gonna be seeing some Derby later. Just saying that. Oh, so, you guys have no idea. Oh, look at that. <laughs> no idea. The ghosts are excited too. If you haven't listened to our episode where we interview Christian and Erica of Deal Marcus, there are some ghosts hanging out in here, so keep your eyes out. So it was first mentioned, the penguin was first mentioned in the Society's catalog, the second catalog, under natural curiosities, along with ostrich eggs, a pregnant queen ant, uh, elephant tails and tusks, lava from Java, a hornet's nest... A two-headed dogfish, and balls of hair from stomachs of cows from Madagascar. So, again, just your typical oddity museum.
1: So, when we're talking about, like, the PEM, and they're all like, oh, look at our carvings. You're like, yeah, 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 guys, but, but. Show me the lava from Java, yeah. please. Show me the ha- Hairy balls. <laughs>
0: It's right. I can't even. <laughs> so apparently the taxidermist that was in charge of stuffing this penguin had never seen a penguin before because, again, like we said, a lot of these people's first interactions with these objects are in the museum. So he stuffed it like any other bird that he was, you know, familiar with. And it looks more like a goose.
1: Yeah. I think it's a, it
0: looks like a goose, right? Goose?
1: Can, can. Um,
0: Swan? Looks like a swan. Maybe swan. I've heard some people comment that it doesn't look that bad, but (laughs) I just wanted to show you what an actual King Penguin is supposed to look like. So it is that bad?
1: (laughs) Oh, poor guys. He looks so like... But mm. hey,
0: I think we should cut him some slack because if he hadn't you know, happened upon this misstep, it would not be sitting in the peabody museum 200 years later. Yeah, and we Uh, wouldn't
1: be sitting here talking about it today.
0: Exactly. You know, they had this place filled with all different birds from all over the region, and all those are not on display anymore. All the, you know, the natural artifacts. (laughs) Rowley. <coughs> are they all Are they all in Raleigh? Probably. They're all in Raleigh. So they got several campuses, one of which is many towns northwest of us. Um, but yeah, they're probably all hidden in storage up there. But because this penguin is so unique and it's so wrong, <laughs> we get to see it whenever we go to the Peabody Essex Museum. And it is this quirky little piece of, you know, Salem history and honestly global history because it just goes to show, you know, the transfer of information, how difficult it was to come upon these animals back in the day
1: i think one that when the best things other than everything about the penguin um is that it is in a cabinet of curiosities it is like so if you go to the the salem uh vignette a to z exhibit uh and you're like oh there's the penguin it's in a cabinet with other stuff like um a piece of the great wall of china yep Because, you know, the ostrich egg.
0: A hookah pipe from like 1800.
1: A a Egyptian carved god deity statue from like 3000 BCE. So, uh, you know, it's in good company. But it's, you know, when we talk about like this cabinet of curiosities idea, where the penguin is, is literally in a cabinet of of, uh, natural wonders and curiosities.
0: All right, I think everyone is hot enough. Let's adjourn for a little intermission. You guys are welcome to go grab a drink, shop downstairs, step outside for a little breeze. We will return here in ten, about 7 fif- to 10 minutes. Ten I was going to say
1: 10 to 15. Ten. Okay, let's ten. go 10, minutes. Ten, ten minutes. minutes. 10 minutes. Go, go, go. All right. <laughs> Do you want to oh, tap, and thank you. tap again? Or... No,
0: um, yeah. Oh, thank you, Peter.
1: Thank you. <laughs> That's my little brother, by the way. I'll get you a participation trophy. I think I have a few in the basement from back in the day. (laughs) Right? And we return! Welcome back. Everyone good? A little cool down. Got the fan. I think the sun's finally gone, so hopefully it won't get to a thousand degrees in here. But uh, That
0: or you know, they are steaming up a bit. People are gonna think there's um <laughs> some uh, oh, scandalous it? things happening here. Well, I don't in know here. what you're doing with
1: your fan, but it speaks volumes. <laughs> oh, that is a good form for that. Chow! <laughs> Stab me 13 times, that would be great. <laughs> Put that on a bag. Okay, so. We are moving on to other things in the PEM. So I'm going to start talking about um, who has seen the eight and a half foot tall statue of the Hawaiian god. And I'm going to mispronounce this like a lot. So uh, my apologies, Ku.
0: I'm going to show you guys. One, I have I have never even seen it.
1: So, I'm so to- uh, the statue is currently upstairs uh, near the... Uh, Gwenda exhibit that's the human hair flags exhibit which we'll talk about at the end uh and this is a uh one of my uh, sort of secret favorites of of the Peabody Essex Museum because it speaks uh volumes both about the museum itself of Salem's history of international trade and uh things along these lines so <clears throat> it is from Hawaii Kingdom of Hawaii. And I'm going to throw this out there and if anyone wants to correct me, uh I I'm totally open to that. I had heard and this is years ago uh giving tours in Salem that someone said that the city of Salem was the first city in the United States to uh do trade with the kingdom of Hawaii, uh, which is one of the reasons why we have a lot of sort of pineapples all over the place and other sort of subtle, uh, prolific Hawaiian things. I have no idea if that's true or not. Uh, I've tried to look into it a couple times, and you just sort of, there's, there's just dead ends and, and, and whatnot. So, obviously, today, the, the, the state of Hawaii, previously the kingdom of Hawaii, uh, uh, dis- <coughs> discovered... God, Captain Cook sailed to an already inhabited chain of islands, uh, where in which he encountered uh, th- these people. So this is around the, the early 1800s. Uh, Captain Cook uh, radically misinterprets Hawaiian culture. He returns and they kill him. Uh, so, eh, great loss. But he and, returns
0: and, to Hawaii and they kill him. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, kind of yeah. off. Uh, <laughs> I'm so, sorry, sorry. That's so that's so bad. I'm so sorry. <laughs>
1: Sorry. Yeah, so he thought so. Their culture and their society. He was like, "Oh my gosh, they love me. It's great." And they go back and they're like, oh, "That fucking guy," yeah. and he's dead. Um, Beep. So this is all early 1800s, 1820s. Uh, uh, Kamehameha, king of Hawaii. So at this point in the kingdom's history, the god Ku is or Ku. I'm sorry. I'm butchering it. I'm going to butcher it the whole time. My apologies. Now, he is one of the most prolific gods within the Hawaiian culture. He's one of sort of um, four major gods, Lono, Kanoa, and Kane. And his name is he's the war god. He's the snatcher of kingdoms. So he is the one that the king sort of is embodied by. And soon after the fall of, of Kamehameha and, and his son, and the kingdom of Hawaii sort of falls apart, um, that's when these gods sort of also lose their footing within the culture and the society. At one point within uh, the, the Hawaiian dynasty, there were probably thousands of these statues of Ku all around the islands, adorning palaces, adorning temples, adorning all sorts of things. And the one the Peabody Essex Museum is one of three left in the world. That is it. There is one in the British Museum, because obviously. <laughs> and I, I
0: believe that's the only museum that precedes the Peabody Essex Museum. Yes.
1: And there is one in the Bishop Museum in Honolulu, Hawaii. That is it. Those are the only three that remain. Uh, How these were acquired is... Sorry, so this is... Which I'll get to in a moment. This is a picture of all three of the statues. Uh, They were reunited in 2010, which I'll talk about in a second. But um, as it stands now... Uh, we know one was a gift to King George because, you know, and the others were likely acquired by missionaries or just taken as a souvenir. And at this point in time, with the fall of the Kingdom of Hawaii and the rise of Colonialism and, and these sorts of ideas. There were likely many more that were taken. Um, these just happened to have survived until this day. And the PBSX Museum has had theirs for the better part of two centuries. This is not like a new exhibit. You can go back and see uh, drawings and displays from the mid 1800s where this statue exists. From the early pictures from the early 1900s where this uh, statue exists. So this statue has been a part of the uh, collection of the PBDS Essex Museum for, for centuries. And as Sarah just showed the picture, um, in 2010, uh, the three statues were reunited in Hawaii uh, for a showing, which was, which was pretty neat. And there was <clears throat> a conversation, because uh, Ku is also, as these are the statues that have survived, has sort of been made into a bit of a joke And I I don't mean that in like a ha-ha way, but this is where we get a significant amount of our interpretation of like the tiki idea and the Mm. Polynesian culture and the deities come from some of these surviving statues. So now we're all sitting here drinking glasses and having tiki parties and the revenants of course are these gods that these people worshiped and that's culture and, 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 and whatnot. Uh, but what's, wonderful about these is that they have survived for so long and as i said in 2010 that they were reunited and there was that discourse of is this an okay thing to do should
0: we all send them back to hawaii right
1: like where where's that line and we you know as tour guides walk that line between history and economic uh, concepts all day uh but what's put out is a letter to uh, the British Museum and uh, the Peabody Essex Museum here in Salem. And I just want to read uh, a brief bit of that because it really stands as the importance of what this statue meant to means to people. Were you to seriously consider this request, women would partake waku, and pound Kappa for his malo. Men would craft chants in his honor. It would mean sending Hawaiians to Salem that they may ready Ku for his trip, making clear to him that his return would only be temporary. It would mean readying Hawaiians at dock sides, chanting his arrival. It would mean being enveloped once again in his element, standing alongside his brethren. But what would that mean to the Hawaiian community? They survived. They outgrew their religion They survived colonialism, war, and destruction. They survived ignorance, racism, and marginalism. When gathered in solidarity, these coups remind us that these essences forever remain. And today, it has been returned uh, to the PPD Essex Museum. And if anyone's looking at the statue and notices on his pedestal, he's not quite centered, it's because he's facing Hawaii.
0: Aww. I'll be honest, I've never notice the statue and I feel so terrible. Um, but <laughs> so many
1: hidden things in the tab,
0: but it's not very hidden, right? Like no, it's, 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 it's out, like it is out. It's yeah. one of those large cause it's large, right? He's and I feel about like they, eight and a
1: half feet tall. they
0: take large objects, they put them out for people, you know, to entertain them. Like it becomes a conversation piece within these larger atriums. So he is in kind of a, you know, a atrium of sorts, not in a specific exhibit. Right. So you have to seek him out. Um, Out of curiosity, is there signage around the statue? No,
1: there's a small Just a little small. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: But it does give a pretty good overview. And it
1: is is in English and Hawaiian.
0: I love that. So, everyone, go check out the god Ku. All right, we're moving on to our next... (gasps) Topic of the evening. This is
1: not something you can go see. So,
0: so we're moving into the depths of the Peabody Essex Museum for these final two objects we talk about today. Things that some people have seen, we have not, and I'm sure none of you have either. So, we are talking about Blackbeard's skull. (gasps) One One of the most renowned pirates in the 18th century. Unfortunate for those who don't know, his actual name was Edward Teach. I'm gonna go to my pirates over there. Am I I pronouncing it right? I was about to text you and ask, just to make sure. Okay, I wanted to make sure I did it right. So Edward Teach was his actual name. Um, He gets the the nickname Blackbeard later on into his piracy career. Um, Probably born around 1680 or so in England. We don't have a lot of information about his early life, um, but he did get his start as a privateer, which, if you are familiar with Salem history, you've probably heard that term before. We got,
1: we got some of those here in oh, Salem. Oh, we got a
0: lot of them. Legal piracy. Basically, you have the AOK from the local government to go out and capture these ships, these enemy ships, take their cargo, take their people for ransom, and you get a nice cut of that profit.
1: Government-sanctioned acts of war.
0: War. Exactly. So he fought in Queen Anne's War, as well as the War of Spanish Succession. And after these kind of commenced with several treaties, a lot of these privateers, you know, they're used to going out and fighting and capturing ships. What are they going to do with themselves? A lot of them turn to piracy. So... He moved to the Bahamian island of New Providence, uh, the largest, most inhabited islands, island in the Bahamas. Um, this was kind of towards the end of the golden age of piracy. It started around 1650. It'll end around 1825, or sorry, 1725. So we are, you know, around that that time Um he had joined Benjamin Hornigold's crew around 1716 and was soon placed in charge of a ship he helped capture. Do you have a comment about that man's name?
1: Not at all. Okay. What was it again?
0: <laughs> uh, Benjamin Hornigold. Got it. Horn- oh, I'm not even gonna. <laughs> so like I said, this places him at oh the tail child. end of the golden age of piracy. And his pirate career wasn't very long so he would over the next couple years capture more than 30 ships oversee hundreds of men and even led a blockade on the port of Charleston, South Carolina where he held uh, both people and material goods for ransom. He operated mostly out of the West Indies as well as along the coast of the then British colonies. Now Salem was already an up incoming seaport at this time so it is not crazy to suggest that blackbeard was off this coast i can't i there is no actual documentation of this that he stepped foot in salem but i would put money on it that he found himself up in this area during those summer months it's
1: distinctly one of those things that you're like if you're, if you're sailing through the Massachusetts, Gloucester, Salem area, like, yep. why are, you're like, oh, Salem, the coolest fucking place. Sure.
0: I mean, it's early 1700s. We're not at, we're not in the great age of sail just yet, but we are coming up as that. I mean, it's still, we're still, we're cool. on the way. We're on the way. Definitely a significant port.
1: We'd gotten through the witch thing at least.
0: Yes. So. Thankfully. Yeah. That old thing. If
1: it's past 1711, <laughs> you can be like, oh, look they
0: kind of made it right again. Yeah. So he was described as very tall, broad shoulders, had a very long, thick, black beard. Uh, one historian, Charles Johnson, who wrote uh, General History of Pirates back in 1724, so he was a contemporary of Blackbeard, he described him as such. So our hero, Captain Teach, assumed the cognomen of, or nickname, of Blackbeard from that large quantity of hair which, like, fright, like a frightful meteor, covered his whole face and frightened America more than any comment that has ever appeared there a long time. The, this beard was black, which, oh, that's my last name. I'm oh. sorry, I'm sorry. Which he suffered to grow of an extravagant length as to breadth, it came up to his eyes. He was accustomed to twist it with ribbons in small tails over the manner of our ramulus wigs. So very much like a, you know the old powdered wigs you see, he did that with his beard. I'm
1: just and gonna, gonna turned
0: it about his ears. You can't do that.
1: No, um, but we know someone who can. Who? He's not here. Are you going to say Mike?
0: No. I was going to say he's got a nice mustache. Ben. Oh. (laughs) Someone needs to ask Ben from Vamp Fangs to play Blackbeard, please. I think there
1: might be a boat thing. Maybe he can do like... Oh, my (laughs) goodness. Sarah's going to
0: lose it. Okay. Back to... You good? You good? Focus. Focus. No vampires in this show. No. So his tirade unfortunately came to an end on November 21st, 1718. So he had only signed on to his first um, captainship as a pirate a couple years prior. So like I said, his career did not last long. I think all of us think of him as, you know, this, this ever prominent present, presence well, he, in, you know, piracy I, I feel like
1: he's somewhat like, uh, what's his face, uh, Paul Revere?
0: Yeah, oh my God, he's the Paul Revere of pirates. I
1: mean. (laughs) Seriously. He didn't get drunk and got, I mean, he did get, and then he did, continue.
0: Okay. He, (laughs) he did go for a swim. (laughs) Oh, that's sad to say. (laughs) So. This all came to an end off the coast of North Carolina.
1: Of all places. Of
0: all places. He, Which wasn't, but is. He, along with many other pirates, had accepted the king's pardon at this point. Um, it was issued in September of the previous year. And it required active uh, pirates to surrender by September 5th, 1718. If they did so, they would avoid any trials or repercussions for their crimes committed prior to uh, January of that year. So there was a little bit of a, a period where you couldn't commit any crimes. But they were basically looking to you know, cut their losses, make peace with the pirates. So he agrees to this pardon, but he uh, goes back to piracy by August. So he was kind <laughs> the of into pirate it, way I yeah. guess.
1: Yar. So I can it can tell my pirate joke again.
0: You can tie ty- after That's this. A, okay. We don't okay. have time. Okay. No, we we don't. <laughs> so he is back in piracy. He's off the course of the coast of North Carolina. He's right around um, Ocracoke Inlet, so it's basically, if you went down the coast, it's a nice little strip of land that kind of covers the coast from crazy storms. Um, we don't have them really up here, but I know in the south they definitely have them. We have a um, cape. I guess, in a way, but <laughs> not. I don't think it's formed the same way. No, no, the it's, it's way, not like the uh, it's, Outer it's Banks. Exactly. Yeah. So he's anchored here, this was kind of his prime spot, with several other prominent pirates, uh, including Calico Jack and Charles Vane. If you've ever seen Black Veil or Black Sails, oh my God, yeah, you know. Um Black, Yar. Black Veil, too. <laughs> um, he was anchored, uh, like I said, in that inlet. And meanwhile, the governor of Virginia was... Personally financing an operation to capture Teach. He was done with it. He's like, This is too much turmoil on the colonies. I do not want this man coming in and taking any of our cargo. So, both by land and by sea, they sent people. Two of by? Uh, Actually, yes, two captains by land. I didn't. One captain by sea, but in command of two ships, the Jane and the Ranger, along with 57 <coughs> men, came by sea to capture Teach. Now, he had only had 25 men on board his ship. Many of them had went inland. He was not expecting uh, an ambush of this sort. He was currently on the ship, The Adventure. That's and. a good name for a ship. As, it is a good name, as, uh, it's very hopeful, but not hopeful in this case. Um, it was, It was quite the adventure. So, obviously, fighting ensues. Teach and his guns decimate the ranger while also taking out several forces on the Jane. What he didn't know is the Lieutenant Maynard... Who was in charge of these two vessels? He had instructed the majority of the men to go underneath the ship's decks and wait for the pirates to board. Then they would come out as a surprise attack. Teach was not expecting this. He ordered his men across. Are you? Do you have a question?
1: That's like a. <clears throat> that's like a really standard privateering.
0: Hindsight is 2020, dude. They like did not have
1: Pirates of the Caribbean. No, but back that's then. like that's like a that's like a that's like a textbook privateering tactic.
0: They also caught them by surprise. They you were have just like 30 men in out. your ship, you
1: hide 20 below deck, and you're like, oh help, where? and they oh we're coming, they're like, ha, gotcha. Well, it worked. So <laughs> So Teach
0: ordered his men across, they came up from the hold and unfortunately took the pirates by surprise. Both Maynard and Teach kind of come on to this one-on-one standoff. Both of them fire their pistols, pistols at each other, and Teach is hit. Maynard is not. They drew their swords afterwards teach was isolated at this point though the men had kind of pushed them towards the stern of the boat and he was surrounded by the jane's crew and it was a like again a one-on-one combat with lieutenant menard he started blasting Uh uh-huh teach went to deliver a fateful blow no no blasting swords at this point he was done blasting he was done blasting he Um, went out to cut a Exactly. But as he goes to deliver that fateful blow, uh, one of the men from the crew jumped in. And personally, I think of this as kind of a cheap shot. You know, let the men duke it out one-on-one. But the group's crew joined in, got Teach on the throat. That was kind of the, uh, the final nail in the coffin. Several other men joined in, and they took him down. So... What was that? Through the beard. I know, right? You wonder how much of the beard did they cut off?
1: (laughs) I mean, if they got him on on the side. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Like where the important bits are. The juggler. Right, like the carotid arteries. Like if you're going to choke someone, you want them to pass out, you go here.
0: Yep. Okay. (laughs) Unfortunately, Teach dies in this battle only a couple years into his piracy career, and... I think it's safe to say he put up a damn good fight. When his body is examined, they find five bullet wounds as well as 20 slashes from swords and knives. That's more than 13 stab wounds. He took more than uh, Captain White did, that's for sure. He was also only like 35-ish at the time of his death, 35 to 40. So, like I said, we don't know the exact year that he was born, but he was a younger man. Now, his head was then removed... His body was thrown off the boat into the ocean, but that head gets put on the bow sprit. Am I saying that right? You've sure. sailed before, yeah. Ba- bow sprit of the boat. So basically, the front of the boat as they're sailing towards Virginia. Am I ta- no? That's this. Am I am I right on that? Yeah. Which yeah, one's yeah. the bow? Is it no, the no, front no, no, or the no, back? No, 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 okay, I, good, I you're am. You're I am right. Okay, what, just make sure. What about
1: the, What about the? He went for the.
0: Oh, so legend has it. That headless body swam around the ship seven times before going to the depths of the ocean. Oh, that's
1: important information. It is.
0: I almost put I almost put Mike Vitka's <laughs> audio clip for you guys to hear because he was the one that told us originally of that legend. If you followed our interview with Mike Vitka, he told us a little bit about this story. Doctor. Doctor Mike Vitka. But yes, that that headless corpse swam around the about just a few times before it finally met
1: its demise. So what happened to Blackbeard's skull, So what Sarah? happens
0: to the skull and how on earth does it come into the possession of the Peabody Essex Museum? So
1: I'm, I'm just interjecting. I think this is one of like the coolest things about like... Most obscure as well. It's... I've got some info though. Hit me. Okay. Don't, I've got some info. Again.
0: I think. Thanks to Christian um, of Deal Marcus and Company, he kind of sent me on a little bit of a rabbit hole. And uh, we do have some confirmation that indeed the skull was in the Peabody Essex Museum. So after the skull gets brought to... Virginia, it gets put up on a pole in front of Chesapeake Bay. It was meant to serve as a warning to any pirates like, this is what's going to happen to you. Legend goes, it goes from bar to bar, person to person. At some point, it gets gilded in silver and gets used as a drinking goblet. Although, although, I will. I will say, I think it was the other side. I think they left the top intact. (laughs) He's just going to go for it. I hope you watch that. (sighs) (laughs) And it (laughs) eventually comes in. Just
1: saying. It
0: comes into the possession of a Massachusetts author named Edward R. Snow, who was researching Blackbeard. He was down in Virginia. He claims that it was sitting on a mantle in one of these historic bars, and he negotiated, picked up the skull when he passed away in 1982 his collection was donated by his family to the Peabody Essex Museum. <gasps> now, if you go you through, don't say. If you go through the Peabody Essex Museum, you don't see. I don't even know if you see any
1: skulls,
0: let alone Blackbeard's skull. I don't think you see any skulls.
1: And you I can see skulls here.
0: I always tell people, I'm you know. If, you know, if you get a chance to go into the Peabody Essex Museum, check out this, check out the murder weapon. But I did have someone recently ask me, hey, I've heard that the uh, skull of Blackbeard is here. Do you have any confirmation? And I told them, you know, it's just legend, can't confirm. Well, I will say Peabody Essex Museum did put some skull Gilded in silver on display back in 1992, or sorry, 19 yeah 1998. So if you were in Salem in 1998, they introduced a exhibit called "Tales from the Vault," where they brought out about 150 objects, either rarely be seen or rarely seen or never seen before, and one of these was supposedly Blackbeard's skull. So I actually have a, an advertisement. It says we won't be displaying back Blackbeard's crimson coat, his swords, or his pistols, but...
1: We do have his head. We do
0: have his head. So if anyone tries to tell you that they don't have the
1: head... They have claimed face. before that they have. It is there. Oh... Who feels like a little B&E later?
0: Right? (laughs) This exhibit also included a size 37 shoe. Um,
1: I feel like that's probably not like in today's...
0: What do you mean? No, that's no, that's that's very no, that's very extreme. A shawl of Queen Victoria, a model of the Queen Elizabeth. I mean, there's just the all... model of
1: the Queen Elizabeth is out.
0: Okay, well they brought it out for this too in 1998. I say bring back the vault exhibit. Why don't we have this happening? If you want to
1: print money? We should sign a petition. Like I'm just saying, I don't.
0: So, yes, they do have a skull. It is silver-plated. It is in their vault. They have brought it out at least once. We know where it comes from. Do we know if it is actually Cl- Captain Blackbeard? <sighs> no. No. Unfortunately not, unless we did some type of crazy DNA testing.
1: There, there are some gaps. Oh, he held it for 30 years in his estate, and then he donates the whole right. estate. And there's five skulls, one of them gilded in silver. And you're like, okay, that is also what Blackbeard's skull was in. So it stands to reason that that is correct, but also we don't expressly know.
0: I do want to mention one last thing. Uh, this exhibit that they put on in 1998, it was with 150 objects alphabetically ordered so this whole uh
1: b or s or p
0: i don't know but all i'm saying is the salem stories exhibit that you see today is not the first rendition of the peabody essex museum displaying these types of oddities in an a to z format so it is something that they are hearkening back to
1: so speaking of exhibits that were on display in the 1990s I'm gonna to touch briefly on shrunken heads. So, hold on, do you wanna say that again? M- mother, you would, is what she said. That would, yes, thank you, love you, appreciate you. Um, so uh, we're gonna talk a little about shrunken heads. So these are not currently on display. Um, I've heard a lot of different variations from the Peabody Essex Museum of they have, they don't have, they have had. Um, I went to high school uh, with a friend of ours dr. Mike Vitka who we've now quoted I think like three or four times
0: he should be
1: here he should be here uh, he's on tour probably and You're he right. remembers and this is before we I moved here in eighth grade so it probably was like a sixth or seventh grade field trip uh, that our class took so I wasn't here and they came to Salem and they came to the Peabody Essex Museum and he distinctly remembers seeing the shrunken heads uh, I've talked to several other people who have also seen Seen the same exhibit. Uh, I've talked to a few people who've said that there were um, necklaces of human ears. Uh, I have seen catalogs. With, Come to Salem, visit the Peabody Essex Museum, and on yeah. the cover is shrunken heads. Uh, so they are not currently on display. Uh, there are many, many reasons for this. One of which probably most prolific uh, of which is that idea of uh, culture appropriation and colonization. Um, so I have seen, I was lucky enough to see a couple uh, shrunken heads at the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, New England. Uh, so I'll show you some, these are my pictures that I took. <coughs> so they had a, the Pitt Rivers Museum is attached to the Natural History Museum in in Oxford. And they have a Massive. So what we sort of talked about earlier, the Peabody Essex Museum looking like in the centuries past with cabinets and cabinets and cases and cases filled and filled and filled with stuff is what the Pitt Rivers Museum looks like. I think it's six floors. There's weapons. There is tattooed human flesh. There is uh, oddities. It It is a wonderful, wonderful place. However, since 2017, they have undergone a are we culturally appropriate in the things we're displaying? And in 2022, they came to the decision to remove most of their human artifact pieces, uh, which includes all of the shrunken heads. And for better or worse, I am going to disagree with that decision. Uh, Their decision is based on um, a colonized idea right so those ideas of a shrunken head has been turned into like a pop culture narrative has been you know exploited uh, and, and all these other things and it's their attempt to decolonize their exhibit uh however in my opinion sticking it in a drawer is not the way to do that, uh, to educate people correctly. Yeah,
0: because you have it anyways. You, right. Right, you're just going to keep it?
1: And so so we've talked about these things incorrectly for a few years. Well, the way to fix that is to talk about it correctly. correctly. Um, so that is uh, this cultural conflict with the idea of a shrunken head. And it does have a lot of taboo uh, connotations with it, but it is a historically important artifact and item uh, when it comes to any culture. So we'll talk a little bit about a shrunken head. What is a shrunken head? So this bit of the head, hi, this is my skull. This has been removed. Um, So it is mostly just tanned skin. So the shrunken head is taken in combat by a warrior in a a tribal or one-on-one combat. And once you kill that opponent, you then take their head. And within the culture, society these existed. This is mostly, by the way, in Ecuador and Peru, so it's going to be on your western coast of uh, the, the South American continent uh, in that sort of top northern region close to uh, Central America. Uh, sometimes it goes a little bit down into the Peru area, some, excuse me, into the Chile area, sometimes a little bit in the Colombia area, but it's mostly in, in, in Ecuador and Peru where these tribes who did this uh, participated. So you've killed your opponent, and now you take that quote-unquote war trophy, which is something that we as humans, uh, for better or Worse, have taken in pretty much every culture and every conflict that we have any record of. Uh, so to dismiss these in some sort of taboo way, again, in my opinion, is saying that we're just shelving the conversation of those people and of their culture, which needs to be talked about. And so now you've won that conflict. You take the head. Of course, the first thing you have to do is remove the rest of the body. And then the next thing you have to do is remove the actual skull itself. This is normally done by taking a a knife, an incision, and cutting behind the ear, sort of elongated. And you peel that flesh back and you take the skull as it was out of it. So now you have...
0: I thought the skull was in there the whole time.
1: (laughs) So now effectively you have... A mask is is what that so you know. You see, you go to party city, and you and I don't want (laughs) to. You're good. Don't worry. What do you
0: put inside it?
1: So, and then you take that skull. Now, within their culture and their ideas, there are several. uh, Sorry, there's three spirits Uh, the walk, walk and eye, which is innate to humans to survive in their death, the artram which is the vision or power which protects people from a violent death, or the muesque, which is a vengeful spirit, which surfaces when a person carrying the Atuam spirit is murdered. So that's where this spirit comes out, and that's where this spirit comes into prominence within the idea of a shrunken head, because as the victor, you don't want to risk that spirit coming and harming you. So the spirit is going to escape from the that, that body through either the eyes or the mouth, which is why when you see shrunken heads, those eyes, and especially the mouth, are sewn shut. That is to keep that malevolent spirit from your defeated opponent trapped inside, so it cannot harm you in this world uh so again getting back to that culture idea that is radically important to their society to their culture to their understanding to how they functioned and for us just to stick it in a drawer and say yeah well maybe we got it wrong we'll get it right this time Mm -hmm. which is where that conversation needs to happen so when you see shrunken heads and those lips are sewn shut that is to keep that trapped malevolent spirit inside So what they do once they remove the skull is they typically put either seeds or beads in the nose and the eyes and the mouth to keep that shape, and then they're going to boil it. They stick it in uh, boiling water with tannis, so that's going to shrink it, and then once it's gotten down to a good size, you take it out of the boiling water, and while it's still hot, you fill it with hot stones and hot sand, so it keeps that human shape, and then that flesh, you take and you rub with soot to give it that darkened appearance. Oftentimes, when we see these human skulls, they're very, excuse me, these shrunken heads, they're very black or dark in appearance, uh, but that's because that soot or that uh, material has been rubbed into that skin, into that leather effectively to give it that darker colorization now these were typically uh adorned by tribal leaders, warriors of prominence. Oftentimes, they'd be displayed for a significant or short amount of time, depending on the situation, as far as we can understand. Uh, sometimes, they'd be placed at the entrances of villages uh, to be like, hey, look, look what we've done. <laughs> we beat that guy, and there's his head, uh, which is really nothing different than any other conflict that we've seen within the concept of of uh, human uh Disagreements. As yeah, well, you, were, you
0: put a flag instead of a. Well, you were just
1: talking now. about Edward Teach's skull. Oh yeah, He's I mean if you want to go back Charlotte. centuries. Yeah, you want to sit yeah. here and be like, oh yeah, we killed this guy. We put his head on a pike. Done. And they just happen to go to that extra cultural measure yep. with their uh, religious beliefs and their their ideology. So the problem uh, with reflection in the modern era comes when those of us who are trading more often than not. With the peoples of the Caribbean, and when we encounter, we go around the Cape uh, of Good Hope.
0: Which one are you talking about? No, Cape Horn. Cape Horn. Cape Horn. Like, as
1: I said, I knew I was wrong. It's okay. Uh, And go to that far side of the uh, uh, South American continent. And now we're trading with these people. And they want guns, of course, because guns. And... Uh, There is some record that one shrunken head for one gun was the going rate. That needs a little bit of exploratory uh, information. But we have found, as the traders, these things are cool and we want them. And they then become in high demand. Now, to these people, while they were important, They were not treasures. They were not historically important. You're like, I killed that guy. It was on display at my dad's house for a couple years, and then we're good, and you kind of get rid of the thing. So there's not like a whole trove of shrunken heads. So when the Western world or whatnot becomes interested in these artifacts, what we end up what they end up doing is then that idea of head hunting, where you're going out and killing people exclusively to then shrink their skulls, shrink their heads, and then sell those for weapons and whatnot. that's the prize. For the prize. And that's where a lot of the uncomfortable conversation comes in the modern area with that idea.
0: But I think you can have that conversation without also talking about that that angle of it. If we
1: don't have that conversation, then then less knowledge is passed and the less we learn. Um, it's estimated today that about 80% of shrunken heads that we see are actually fake uh, because it became such a prolific economic uh, ideology that they would take sloths, uh, monkeys, uh, or just generic skin and, and mold it and shape it into the face of a person and sell that Uh, to traders to tourists and whatnot so like i said about 80 percent of today's shrunken heads are almost always fake almost all female uh heads you see are fake with the exception of a few uh but within that construct if you see a female shrunken head that woman was killed exclusively for For the head, not in combat, not in warfare, because women did not uh, involve themselves in those sorts of conflicts within those cultures. Uh, So it's one of these things that obviously is a little taboo, is a little like third rail in in, in which we talk about. But uh, the Peabody Essex Museum does not have their collection on display. Recently, Oxford, the Pitt Rivers Museum, put their collection away. And
0: if you're just going to put it in a closet... You might as well use it as a way to educate. I I think think that's that's the wrong decision. The bottom line.
1: But these are things, again, uh, we've talked about a a, a dozen things today. And it's It's things like this. Half a dozen. It's things like this that when... We can have them when a museum has them, when, when we have culturally have access to them, that we can not only learn more about those cultures, but also learn more about our culture and how we treated those cultures and the history of the, the shrunken hand in the past 200 years.
0: Which is ultimately the goal of the Peabody Essex Museum. So embrace it, you know, challenge those controversial top- topics. I think one thing we can take away from this experience is bring back the shrunken heads. Let's talk about them the right way. Also bring back the uh, the vault exhibit so we can <laughs> see everything else too. So, and there's
1: all sorts of stuff. Oh in my gosh,
0: panel. so much. Keep in mind that you only see about 1% of their even, actual even on display. collection on display. It's about 1% that they actually put out. So there is so much more to this museum. Um, hopefully we'll see some changing exhibits along the way in the next few years. I think they are becoming more, you know, um, they're listening to the public more. There so was a
1: director who was not amicable to some things. Maybe for things a long
0: will change time. in the next couple of years and we can see some of these hidden objects put on display and interpreted correctly. But I hope um, I hope I, sp- I speak for both of us when we say that this inspired you guys to go to the Peabody Essex Museum if you haven't been so already. Um, it, you know it may you, you look at it. it's this big large facade of a building, big windows looks very modern. you may walk into it and feel a little out of place. It doesn't feel like Salem, but in reality it, it is, is a perfect exemplification of Salem and its history. and if you know where to look, you're going to get a better understanding of the city's history and the P- Peabody Essex Museum story in particular. So definitely go to the PBS- Peabody Essex Museum if you have not.
1: Look at the penguin. Look at the murder weapon. You cannot see Blackbeard's skull or the shrunken heads, but check out the God Coup. Also, check out everything else. They have uh, what?
0: All sorts of things. The, the
1: the Guwenda exhibit on at the moment, I think it closes soon, uh, United Nations flags made out of human hair. Um, George Jacob uh, walking uh, I, sticks yep.
0: from the P- the Salem witch trials. We have several documents and artifacts from that. John Proctor's sundial,
1: all sorts of things. So there's tattoo implements, scrimshaw. Uh, uh, there's and I know I didn't know this until like a few days ago. There's a bottle of bat guano from 1866. That's
0: bat poop for who, anyone who doesn't know that.
1: So if you're looking for cool stuff, there you go. I think that's just about it. We got, we, we're running like A little 20 bit. minutes behind. No, don't tell them that's that. That's okay. They know. They've all seen the schedule. No,
0: it's okay. It's all right. No, okay. we're doing um, just fine.
1: That's, uh, so that's it from us.
0: That's it from us. We are, so, oh, oh. oh, thank you guys. Yay.
1: Yeah.